John, why do you love character-driven films? I think it goes back to when I was a kid and I would watch movies in theaters or sometimes even things I saw on television. And I would get so involved with these characters. And you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, kind of a working class neighborhood. So any opportunity that I had to um, be transported you know, out of that into a different world with people I didn't know anything about, I was always very interested in that. But the most important thing for me, I think that inspired me most, was those moments in the theater where I would sit there and recognize something in a character that I recognized from myself. And I realized I'm not alone. Um, and that, to me, was the single most powerful thing that bonded me to storytelling and to movies. And I, very early on, I thought to myself, I would love to make someone feel that way. I would love to tell a story that someone sits there and goes, oh, wow, that's me. That's my family. Uh, I'm, I'm okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a misfit. There's somebody else. So that, that's really why I love it so much. And, and I've always tried to, everything I do, I try to make sure it's informed with you know, interesting characters and, and, and you know, some depth and, and an, an arc, you know, or somewhere to go. Do you remember those first few movies that you saw wherever you were in New York? I do. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but the first movie I saw my mother took me to at the Lowe's Oriental in Brooklyn, and it was called Madame X, Joan Crawford. And, um, you know, as I remember the plot, uh, she had to give up her baby, uh, you know, when she was a young woman, and then years later she gets accused of murder, and she finds this lawyer to defend her, and it's her son, you know. And it was so uh, uh, fraught with you know, emotion. If I saw it today, it would probably be too much emotion. I don't know. Maybe it's too sentimental. But I was so, you know, I was probably like eight or nine when I saw that film. And first, just being in a, in a movie theater, I was so, wow, this is like so transported. There's already, you know, the curtains open, and I just felt the hair on my neck go up. And, um, and I was very, very emotionally affected by that movie. And on the bus, going back to our apartment in Brooklyn, I started to cry. And I said to my mother, because at, at the end, I guess, she never revealed herself to her son. And uh, so the secret remained. And, and I begged my mother, don't ever leave me. You know. um, so yeah, I think that, that was one of the first movies I saw that really um, made me feel uh, very powerfully attracted to this idea of telling stories. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah. And I saw another movie on TV, this was. Um, if you remember the old uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame, uh, before that whole brand was kind of diluted by the Hallmark Channel. But the Hallmark Hall of Fame was like the prestige television in the 50s and 60s and all the way up to fairly recently. And there was a, a TV production of Arthur Miller's The Price with George C. Scott and Barry Sullivan. And it was about these two brothers who came to their father's house. Their father just passed away. And they had to split up the stuff. And there was a an interesting character who was there too. I guess he was like a, I don't know if he's a pawnbroker, but he was somebody who was going to sell them and buy the stuff. And uh, it was a great, um, you know, I think George C. Scott was a brother who had become a cop and the other brother was a more white-collar guy and one had left and one stayed to take care of the father. So all these great, interesting you know, family dynamics. And again, I was very young when I saw that film. I couldn't have been much more than 11 or so, I guess. But I was, again, just so struck by the, the truth that I saw in these relationships. 
and and the the, the raw emotion and the way the actors you know, performed it, I was just so completely taken away by it. And I have to say, just then going ahead many years, uh, I was thrilled when I got to direct my first Hallmark Hall of Fame. And I, I was telling when they hired me, I said, you, know, you have no idea the history I have with your show, <laughs> you know, and how it was one of the things that inspired me uh, you know, to, to be a director, be a writer-director and tell stories. What does it mean to understand your characters? Well, I think as a writer, for me, it comes first from writing characters that you recognize. Um, there might be combinations of people you know, um, either you know personally or people you imagine. Uh, and oftentimes, for me, I think most writers, there are aspects of yourself that you put in character. Um, so uh, I, I really feel like that, that is the most important thing in storytelling is the character. And uh, it's one of the things I always tell students uh, who are starting out in film, because so many young people starting out, and I was one of them many, many years ago, but I felt, uh, and, and a lot of the young people feel very enamored with the, with the technology. It's all about the lenses and what can be done and the digital and the effects in it. And the characters get lost. And uh, so I always try to emphasize to students how important it is to be observant of the world around you, um, to try to understand the people you see. Like, you know, I'm just, I live in New York, so I'm a great student of behavior. Uh, just to go on the subway and sit there and watch people it's fascinating. You know, I never get bored. If I have to meet somebody on a street corner and they're late, it's fine because there's just a show going on everywhere I look. And I think it's really important to attune yourself to that and also uh, your ear for dialogue, to listen to the way people speak, how they express themselves, what are they really saying, uh, what's the subtext, what's going on underneath what they're saying. Um, and so I feel like those are things that, that I uh, urge students to expose themselves to and not only in, in real life, but also in literature and theater and music, you know, not just watch movies all the time, because then you're just really making movies that are influenced by other movies. Um, you know, going back to some of like the, my heroes in the old Hollywood days, you know, the John Ford and Sean Houston and Orson Welles, you know, all these fabulous storytellers, uh, Preston Sturgis, and all of their work was so full of quirky, interesting, real characters. And those, those filmmakers all had really rich, interesting lives before they ever became filmmakers. And even John Huston, who obviously came from film royalty, his father was Walter Huston, but even he had left Hollywood and he was a boxer, he was a newspaper reporter, uh, he was homeless for a great deal of time. So when he came back to make his movies, he brought with it this depth of knowledge about life and people. And so um, uh, that's what I really feel is so important for people to, because you know, the, the technology of it, uh, it's, it's fantastic. But as a director, your job is simply to know you know what the story you want to tell is and how you want to see it. And it's really somebody else's job to now execute that which doesn't mean that you, you give up any control. But you know when I was first starting out, I was lucky enough to kind of twig to that early on. So instead of trying to figure out, oh no, how would, how would this shot work? How can I possibly see this guy come from here and then go over there, all in the same shot? I would just sit down with the DP, the director of photography, and say, here's what I want to see. You know, I'll take this guy out of the thing, and, he, and we follow him in here, and then we bring him up here. 
How do we do that? And then they'll find a way. So then after 35 years, you know, you, you get to know, you don't have to ask anymore, you, you get to do it. But I do think, as something I always tell students, is that don't be so intimidated by the technology or so enamored of it that you're frozen uh, in the other areas that are so important about storytelling. Um, because if you surround yourself with really talented people, you get a great assistant director, you get a great uh, you know, camera person, um, fantastic sound crew, a script supervisor who's really smart, those people will help you. They'll, they'll guide you through, as long as you let them, you're respectful and you let them know that you need their help. Um, but your job is to focus on your vision and what you want to see, and then they'll help you figure out how to actually see it. I love, too, what you said about like uh, public uh, transportation. I, I grew mm. up on, uh, taking the bus everywhere as well. Yeah. And, and it is a fascinating, I mean, you can meet some great people, and some scary ones too, but some great people that'll just open up. And even the bus drivers right. will tell you everything, you know? Yeah, yeah, and you can really just that's soak true. in life, uh, public libraries, things like that. Yeah, and it's funny because when I do come to Los Angeles, uh, usually I'm here for a limited amount of time, and you know I'm always driving everywhere I go. And there are some days where I'm doing multiple meetings where I realize, wow, I have not even touched the air today. I've gone from my hotel to the garage, the car, to another garage, another office back there. And so at the end of the day, I have not, you know, haven't even been outside. And so I always find that um, I used to worry about living here, if I ever lived here full time, that sense of being cut off a little bit from life around you. Uh, and in New York, of course, that's impossible. You, know, you can't, you have to just stay in your apartment. You know. But everywhere you go, stores, uh, the streets, just teeming with drama, you know, all around you. And in fact, I always I do this thing on my Twitter feed where I, every now and again, I'll put overheard, and I'll come up with a little piece of dialogue that I that I just happened to hear. And it's great, you know. I got you know, not long ago, I heard somebody just walking by me on their cell phone, and they I just heard them saying, "I'm all out of body bags. Check with me in March." Oh no, gosh, you know, that's great. You know, where does that come from? Oh my gosh, <laughs> professional uh, autopsies. I right, don't know. you know what is it? So. Uh, uh, it's great to just try to stay in tune with what's going on around you and, and be a you know be a sponge. I'll tell people that it wouldn't even be conscious at a, at a certain point as you're writing that these things you have observed and absorbed just start to seep seep into it, and you start to see these characters and hear them, uh, and you'll start to hear these familiar voices. Oh yeah, yeah, this is that guy. I know who this is. Yeah. Always the greatest moment in writing. Any writer will say this. You know, it's not my original thing. But the greatest moment, either in a script or in a you know, fiction, um, when the characters start to rebel against you, and you, you, you have a plan, you're gonna go, this is where we're going with the story, this is what's happening, and suddenly as you're writing it, you could just feel like it's just not working, they're resisting it, they don't wanna go in this direction, and they wanna go this way, and, and then I, I'll follow them now. And, you know, when that doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's just like golden. And that's where a, a good understanding of character really, really helps you out. And, and is that your signal to you that this is, this is the right direction with this? Like, I know this is a real character now. Absolutely. And it's frustrating sometimes because you realize, oh no, I've been on the wrong path for the whole first act of this, of this script. And now I've found the right path, great, but now I gotta go back and rewrite everything. But you know, you're still, it's a gift. And, and, you know, you, you just take it. Uh, but, yeah, once that, if that happens to me, then I realize, oh, yes, I'm now, I'm in the zone. 
And now the characters are telling me what they want to do. So they've come to life. They're, they're real now. And I, I pay attention. <laughs> are there times when the characters fall flat and you feel there is no resistance and then you realize, should I cut this character or do I need to really work on who this is? Yeah, there are moments where, you know, there's always that deadly thing where I feel like I know what this character is going to say next. And that's, you can't have that. You know, you just cannot, you don't want to be in a situation where the character starts to say something and now, okay, we all know what the rest of that sentence is going to be. So when, I, when that starts to happen a lot, then I have to kind of sit down and just rethink that character. But I will say, oftentimes, uh, there's a trap, there's a danger in that as well, because it can stop you, you know, in the middle of your story, in the middle of your work. It's like, okay, now i got to stop and figure. So what I tend to do um, is I just go through the script, start to finish, and get it done. And as I'm going, I know, okay, this isn't right. This is not going to be, this is, I'm going to have to work on this. But I'm not going to stop now because then I may never finish. I may just get bogged down on this for who knows how long. And I'm going to learn things about the rest of the story as I go along, even though it's not quite right yet. So I will do everything I can. I, I, I try to even read, like when I come down in the morning to work, I don't even read what I wrote yesterday because I'll just get bogged down. I'll start to fix it. I'll start to worry about it. I just want to get that words on paper, that sort of vomit out of, that, of the story. And then once that's done, that's a huge step. Uh, and then I go back, and now that's when the real writing begins. Uh, once that first draft is done, and I can go back in, and I try to take a little rest from it. I have people read it. My wife, Melissa Peltier, is you know, just brilliant with story and everything else in the world. And um, uh, she will give me great feedback about what works, what doesn't work. And, and so once you've had a little outside uh, uh, eyes on, on the material, then you can go back in and start to really mold it and shape it. And, but even on the second draft, I do the same with every draft. I don't stop. I just keep going. Uh, even when I know I'm going to throw this out, I'm going to probably throw out this entire second act. But i got to keep going to get to the end, and then I'll start over again. How does a character drive plot? It's about what they want and what they need and their conflicts and their flaws. Um, you know, it's one of the first things most actors will look at in the, when they're judging a script and want to play this role is what's this character's flaw? You know, what's the problem with this character that, that they have to overcome or that drives them? Or So drama, I think, is all about what, what does the, per the character want um, and what are they willing to do to get it? What can they do to get it? What, you know, what are the stakes going to be? Uh, and then it just it just builds, hopefully, from there. You know, there's always that great debate about what's what comes first, plot or character. And I've always found in my work, uh, there's no rule. Sometimes I'll get, I'll get an idea for a plot um, that will kind of like I'll, something I'll read in the newspaper or something I'll see. And I'm like, oh, wow, wouldn't that be interesting? And then I got to figure out how to populate it with people uh, and, and, and how can I invest this person with uh, a need uh, and a flaw and an opportunity and now put them in that plot. And then there's other times where I just, I come up with a character where I just know, man, that is a funny person. I'd love to see that person. And so then it's about how to build it around, around them. So either one can come first, but ultimately it's, you know, what, what the characters want, I think. Why do you think so many writers bicker about uh, plot versus character? Well, I think it might be because we're all looking for formula. You know, we'd all love a template. 
please just tell me how to write. You know, just please tell me what I did. Here's a formula. You do this, you do that. That's why I think so many of these screenwriting books are so successful because they sort of promise, you know, okay, you've got the idea. That's great. But now I'm going to show you how to apply that idea and, and make it work. And not that there aren't great. I mean, I've read them all. And um, not that there aren't great things to learn from those books. But ultimately, uh, um, you know, you just have to be careful to not rely on something outside yourself to come up with a plot you know, or a story. And a friend of mine, <laughs> once he wanted to be a writer so badly, and he wasn't very good. And I was recommending books for him to read. And um, he read a bunch of them, and I said to him, so, you know, did it help? Was it helpful? He said, well, not really. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, how to write, but there was nothing about what to write. <laughs> so I said, man, if you don't have anything to write about, you're not in the right business. You, you've got to <laughs> do something else. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the real problem is you have too much to write about. There's too many right. things. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Do you ever find yourself being too precious with your characters where you don't want to give them certain flaws or that's never been an issue? It's almost the opposite. You know, I sometimes find myself... Um, hobbling them you know with too many too much darkness too much stuff they're fighting and uh you know i'll get feedback saying well you know it's hard to root for this person because they're a little too dark you know so often i have to kind of pull back on that sometimes and give them a little more light uh than, than heaviness sure well just off camera we were talking about uh white irish drinkers mm. and that's from 2010 yes okay yeah. and so uh and i felt all of the characters were had some flaws, maybe some more than others, but I, I felt that each one I could see maybe where they were coming from. I didn't see one that was even even the one unlikable. You could say I won't give it away, but yeah. you could see where his character might be coming from, right. and and cut him some slack. Yeah, um, Good, and right. and yeah, so so I, I enjoyed that because even the one that was supposedly the the squeaky clean one. There were a few flaws, nothing too right, bad, but right. where everybody had their own things they were struggling yeah. with, and it was beautiful job. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, it's great to hear that. And I think that um, you know, one of the most important things to keep in mind from a writing point of view and also from an acting point of view is that even like the worst villain in life doesn't think they're a villain. You know, everyone thinks what they're doing is the right thing, even if it's just for them. So, you know, people don't go, man, I'm, I'm really bad and uh, I'm going to do this now because I'm a bad person. They're, they're thinking that uh, I'm, I'm un, uh, misunderstood. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm hated. No one likes me. Uh, I never got the breaks. I never got the chance. You know, whatever it is that leads to things. So I deserve to rob this bank. It's not I'm a bad person. I, I just, and so that's I think an important thing with characters. That's why it's fun for me to write villains um, because I love them. I love them, and I want them to have full lives. And and uh, I don't think I don't expect the audience to like them. But I want them to understand them and to feel and to recognize them. That's the most important thing. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that person. I know that person. You know, when, when All in the Family first premiered, which for many of your viewers will probably be <laughs> too young to remember that, but it was the first time on television there was that kind of overtly prejudiced, bigoted, working class character. And you know, the, the switchboard to CBS lit up because they'd say, hey, my dad's on TV. That's my <laughs> uncle. That's my, you know, and so there's nothing more magical, I think, than hitting that button with an audience of like, oh, here's a, here's a there's a specific character, but there's a universal thing that I recognize and feel with that character. 
And it was so great to have the Rob Reiner character butt up against right. Archie Bunker and, right. and two polar opposites and both right. very, very strong in their opinions. Right. And it was right. it was excellent. Yeah. And the longer you got to know Archie Bunker, you know, because at first you hated him, like this guy's despicable. But the more you got to know him, the more you start to understand, the more they led you into his past and how he was brought up and his his experiences as a kid and the disadvantages he had and and you start to understand what formed his worldview. So even though you can't agree with it, you say, yeah, I understand how a guy like that comes to this place where he hates people who are different. He can't understand people. He's frightened by people who are different. And that's a huge step towards making people understand each other. How do you develop a character flaw? Well, again, um, I look within. <laughs> I start inside. Um, one of the things I, I hate about myself that I would like to change um, I like to think that sometimes by writing about it, I can even maybe fix it. You know, it just hasn't happened yet. Uh, so, I mean, that's the basic thing. And I always think that anytime you pull from yourself, not in an egotistical way, but just in, a, in an honest way, um, you're halfway there to making a, a real character. And then it's just about trying to figure out how does this flaw, uh, how, it had, how has it affected this character growing up? Uh, what's it made other people think of him? How has it made other people treat him? Uh, does this flaw become worse because of the way people have treated this character? Is it self-perpetuating? So you can kind of go off on a whole bunch of uh, you know, tangents. I try to start simply and specifically about uh, you know, the flaw that's going to help me serve this plot and, and drive it forward and make for interesting twists and turns. Uh, and it's another thing just... Not to go away from that subject, but specificity also is, I think, one of the most important things in writing. And so often it's missing. I think, you know, people, beginning writers or writers who just don't work that hard, uh, will describe things in vague ways or, or talk about emotions in general vague ways. You know, um, I miss my wife so much. Uh, you know, she died two years ago. I miss her so much. You know, this is sort of the, the simple example, as opposed to saying, you know, when my wife came down in the morning, the first thing she did was, uh, you know, put this, put the cup upside down on the, you know, something specific that you really feel like you you can almost see and hear and smell, uh, and so that also plays into flaws and just something that's you can exhibit. Uh, you know, the, the character can, because character is also of course all about behavior. Uh, and especially in films, you know, in, in novels, you have the luxury of having this inner life that you can use words to describe. But in movies and TV, we're just limited by what we can see. We gotta just deal with what, what people are seeing. So you really have to uh, uh, explore and illustrate behavior. Uh, I'm sorry, character through their behavior. What, what we're seeing them do, how they treat each other, um, what they do when they're alone. You know, are they different when they're alone and with, with somebody else? Um, how are they different with, with two different people? Um, you know, this is all little tricks you can use behaviorally to really set up who your character is and make them recognizable. And in your character's arcs, do they always, let's say a dark character, does it always turn themselves around or no, there's just some sort of resolve, but they're still the same? You know, I think that the best drama you know, the characters all make a journey of some kind. I don't always feel like um, you have to do the network television version of it where, you know, the, the bad guy has to see the evil of his way. You know, it's, it's not. I mean, people, 
Um, you know, a great example of this, I think, is, uh, uh, is it Three Billboards? In, in oh, Evans, right. Or, uh -huh. You know, and the character Sam Rockwell played was just a brilliant actor. You know, that's a guy who makes a fantastic arc. And he starts off as this hateful racist. And in his relationship and dealings with Francis McDormand, he starts to come around a little bit and he ends up helping her. But by the end of the movie, you don't feel like this guy is going to go out now and go on a march. But he has regained a little bit of humanity, so you have some hope for him. And so to me, that's a perfect uh, and an expertly done uh, character arc uh, for someone like that. Where you, you know, If he suddenly became this touchy-feely, lovey guy, oh, was, you wouldn't believe it and wouldn't honor the work that was done in setting up who this guy is. So, you know, people, I don't think, sadly, you know, I think people don't tend to change very much. I think they change increments. And so you don't have to necessarily reflect that in drama because you want to give people something a little higher to you know, aspire to. But I think you have to, any, any evolution of a character has to be true ultimately to who they really are and, and you know, how they're going to manifest that change. And in Frances McDormand's character in, in Three Billboards out of Ebbing's Montana, how does she change? Well, I, you know, I certainly think that she becomes less um, angry. Uh, you know, I think that when, particularly when Sam Rockwell helps her and, and she starts to feel like she's not alone, uh, I think she finds a way to deal with her pain. Uh, and you get the sense by the end of the movie that, okay, she's probably going to be all right. She's probably, she's going to learn how to live with this pain. It's always going to be there, but it's not going to just um, uh, keep her stalled. And I think at the beginning of the movie, she is just stalled. She can't go forward. And so she's not going to be this happy-go-lucky person, but you do feel like um, you know, she has now maybe found another color in her life. What do you think about people who write their personal stories? that they, they want to show themselves as a protagonist. You know, a lot of people come to L.A. or, or they're somewhere in the Midwest or wherever. Hey, I've got this great screenplay idea. It's about my life. Is everybody ready to hear about their life as their first project? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult thing, too, because the old adage is write what you know. Um, and so for beginning writers, oftentimes a, you know, uh, autobiographical experience is something that they know and they, they have the emotional connection to it. The, the problem is you still have to serve your audience. It's got to be entertaining. Um, and it's got to have enough of a universal appeal. And I, when I say that, I don't mean that means it has to be homogenized, but there has to be enough things in it that people can connect with and recognize behavior-wise, like, okay, I'm going to go with you on this story. So whatever your story is, You've got to find a way to plug it into more of a universal consciousness, uh, so that it'll it'll be uh, it can be absorbed by people who don't know you, don't know your story, don't care about your story. But how does your story relate to something in my life? Um, I don't know. If I sound very pretentious saying all this, but uh, no, uh, I don't think so. You know, I, I just think it, it. You should never think like my life is so fascinating that anyone would be willing to spend two hours of their life watching it. You know? um, there might be great things that happen to you, but I think you should be really willing and able to just throw a lot of it away and, and concentrate on the core thing that you feel is the story you want to tell, this core thing, and then build around that, make, make stuff up. 
make it more interesting, make it make the stakes higher, uh, bring in characters who are not real in your life. And, but so you can you can build something that might be a very good, well-crafted story, but also has enough personal resonance. Uh, now, for instance, when I um, for many years I was doing movies for television, and I, I prided myself on I wrote them and directed them. And I, I chose very carefully what I would do. I never took a movie for the money or because I, you know, I was very careful about what I, what I chose. If it was a book I want, they wanted me to adapt or oftentimes they would come to me with a, a failed script. And they, you know, they said, look, we still want to make, there's an idea here we love. We want to make this movie. This script didn't work. Can you do something with this script? And I would take it over. And, but in any project that came to me, the first thing I had to know was, What's my emotional connection to this? Can I find one? And if I can't find it, I don't want to do it because now I can't really, I don't feel like I can make it interesting. And a case in point is I did a movie uh, back, geez, it must be 98, 1998, for TNT at the time called The Hunley. And it was about the first uh, submarine used uh, in warfare during the Civil War. Fascinating story, um, just fascinating. But, uh, you know, I wasn't so much into a war movie, which it was, it was, I wanted to make it more of a character study, but I couldn't figure out what was driving this main character to get into this death trap, this tube that they all had to hand crank to go forward once they dived. You know, what could this be? And I suddenly had this idea that he was in love with a woman um, who he left to go fight the, in the war and she died while he was gone. And she drowned. And he's now obsessed with being reunited with her. And that's sort of his death wish now about going into the submarine. And he feels like this is his, his, his destiny in a way. And it's never spoken. I never told the executives about it, God forbid, because they would think, you know, I'm making some, a whole other movie. But that now allowed me to inform all the writing and this, and this character's drive through the movie with this kind of other thing that we revealed in just little pieces here and there, a little flashback here, a little thing here. And suddenly by the end of the movie, you start to realize, oh, of course, this is why this guy is like this and he's driving so hard. And so that's just an example of, you know, how you can take a story that's outside yourself, um, but find a, a personal connection that, that allows you to really f lose yourself in that story and, and make it more than what appears just, you know, on the surface. How do you know when you have a movie idea as opposed to a television idea? I don't think there's any difference now. You know, that we, that, that's a question I could have answered differently back in the 80s or 90s even. Now there's just no, there's, there's really no difference uh, because of streaming. Um, you know, I think, in fact, uh, I think there's far more, work, more interesting work being done uh, on the streaming services than in feature films. Uh, you know, I think feature films right now, the state of the business is tenpole franchise, gigantic movies, which seem to be the only thing people are willing to leave their homes for. Um, and I think that the, you know, sort of like the directors, you, you think about, you know, Mark Rydell and Cindy Lumet and Alan Pakula, those directors would be working for the streamers today because their movies would never be made. You know, no one wants to go see um, you know, uh, Kramer versus Kramer. They're not going to they watch it on Netflix. So, I mean, it's sad. Uh, of course, there's nothing like the movie experience. 
But I'm so grateful that the streamers are there because they don't have to get, unlike a broadcast network, you know, they got to get 15 million people to watch a show to make it worth their while. And the streamers can be in a much different niche and they don't have to, they've got the subscriber base and so they can appeal, they can afford to appeal to a lot of different groups. And so, um, uh, honestly, most of the ideas that I get, I don't think about them as movies, I think about them as something that might be on Amazon or Apple Plus or Netflix. Um, not that I don't, again, just love going to the movies because I'm addicted. <laughs> I mean, I easily see five or six movies a week, probably two or three in a theater, uh, and then the rest on, you know, plus the television shows I'm watching, you know, the, the great, you know, Better Call Saul. You, know, you just can't beat this stuff. It's so well done. And in a way, it's very gratifying because I think that in the era that I came of age in television, where you had to, uh, they, they pressure you to appeal to the lowest common denominator. And we filmmakers always said, but, but you don't have to do that. You know, trust the audience a little bit. And now I think that's coming to fruition because we are now um, uh, in, in the television world or the streaming world, uh, we're dealing with stories that uh, would no one ever make for television years ago, would never even touch them. Uh, and, and there's an appetite for them. People show up for them, they want to see them. And I think that, you know, again, a lot of the lowbrow stuff now is in the movie theater, you know, not, not on TV. Why do purpose and passion matter when choosing a screenplay? Well, in a lot of different ways. In the most practical way, um, making a movie, uh, and when I say movie, I, I'll, you know, it applies to anything, you know, TV movie, a TV show, whatever, just a movie. But uh, it is difficult. It's hard. It's hard to get it made. Um, if you're lucky enough to get it made, they're hard to make. Um, it's, it's a very, very uh, difficult undertaking to make a movie. It's the greatest thing in the world, uh, but it's hard. So you must have a high level of purpose and passion to bring you through this because you're going to get uh, stepped on. You're going you know, it, it's a, <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna lose your money. You'll get the money back. You're gonna. You know, the, here comes the rain. Oh no! Have a good. There's so many things that happen during the shooting and everything else that will destroy you if you don't have a really good attitude and that overriding purpose. I must make this movie and you know, this passion for a story. I've got to tell this, and that passion is so key in selling your ideas. Um, I, I can't emphasize that enough. If you go to pitch a TV show or you're going to a studio to pitch them a movie you want to make. You have got to be genuinely passionate about it. They've got to feel that. They've got to feel like, okay, if we say yes to this person, they're going to go out there and they're going to kill themselves to make this movie. I can tell. You know? Whereas if you come in there like you're too cool for school, and uh, you know, nobody wants to hear that. No, you know, um, and it, it extends to all your collaborators. You're trying to get a certain actor. You're trying to get um, you know a certain artist to work on your film. Um, they want to feel your passion for this thing. They want to know that you're gonna, you've got a vision and you're going you're gonna to get this thing done. So it's really crucial in every aspect of the process. For every idea that you come up with, how many of them are what you consider bad ideas and you throw them away? Well, I, I, I feel like I never really throw an idea away. Um, an idea will either be just not ready yet um, or... It's, it's not enough to be its own thing. I'm going to have to put this aside, and this might be a piece of something else later on. Um, 
you know, there's just a tons of ideas that you 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 work out in your head and you think, is that something? Is that you know, could I? And then when it comes to the point where now I can't make that gel, I just I just keep it somewhere in the back of my head, behind my left kidney somewhere. And uh, you know, I'll be five years later, I'll be working on something, and I'll just think, ah, oh, subplot, you know, ah, oh, villain, you know. And also, I must say, you know, I've been making a lot of short films now. And so it's been a great treasure trove for me to go back to some of these ideas that I tried to develop as feature films or a TV series. And I never could really figure out a way to sustain them for two hours or for five years. But they're still good, solid little ideas. And I thought, ah, this would be a great 10 minute little movie. And so I've had a lot of success in that way with just taking this, an idea from you know, 15 years ago uh, that now, and then if you, know, you, you modernize it and, and uh, uh, you know, suddenly uh, breathe new life into it, so it's not just the same thing. But uh, ideas to me are gold and, and uh, I never really throw them away. <laughs> They're always there. So going back to your friend who, bless his heart, wanted to read these screenwriting books, but then said, well, what ideas do I come up with? Right. It sounds like for you, that's never been a problem. And in fact, there's so many, it's just how much time do I have? Yeah, it, it is frustrating. Uh, you know, there's so many things I want to do. Uh, you know, I have, an, I have a, an idea for a new novel um, but that's an incredible undertaking, you know, to write a novel and, you know, scripts, I, I write scripts pretty quickly. Once I get the idea and I, I, I feel like it's formed, I can actually write the script pretty fast. But uh, it's frustrating because a novel I know I've got to devote a year to that and um, it's hard to put everything else aside, you know, to do that. But it's, it's a strong idea and I'm desperate to do it. So uh, there are, there's tons of ideas that, uh, and that's also where they have short films help me because I can, I can develop them quickly, execute them quickly, and see them done in front of an audience, you know, fairly quickly. Um, but there, and I guess it's a good thing ultimately, but it's frustrating that I just feel like I'll never be able to tell all the stories that I want to tell just because, you know, you only live so long. Does it become easier to come up with good ideas the longer you're doing this, the longer you've been creative? I don't think so. Um, I don't think it gets easier or harder necessarily. Uh, the, you know, the question always is, you get an idea and then you know, how to grow it. Uh, is it really strong enough to sustain an audience's interest to be worthy of an audience giving two hours of their time to watch it or an hour, whatever it is? Uh, or 10 minutes <laughs> in the case of my short films. Um, but I don't think, you know, to me it's always been, uh, yeah, the, the ideas come, but the, the forming of those ideas into a cohesive story is difficult and always has been, I think, probably for me, always will be. Uh, you know, I so envy, there's writers I know, um, showrunners I know, people like Stephen King, who seem to be able to just come up with an idea fully formed and just get out there and, and do it. And it's a much slower process for me, even though once the idea is formed, I can go very quickly. But it just takes a while for me to really get the depth I want and the complexity that I want in this story. And it's, it's the most difficult part of writing for me because it's really starting from nothing. And so I stand there at my desk and it's like the blinking cursor and I've got this basic idea but now I've got to just create the beats, beat by beat by beat, and what's going to happen. And it's horrible for me. It's a horrible process. It takes me a really long time. And 
Um, my friends like it because I tend to be in touch with them a lot because, oh, I haven't spoken to Bill in a while. I better call Bill, uh, you know, rather than actually concentrating on his work. Um, but once I start to get the ideas and the ideas flow and I understand now, okay, this is what the story is. Here's the ending. Uh, here's the three acts. Uh, once that happens, then I can really kick into high gear. Then I really enjoy it because uh, now I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm working with. It's like having the frame of a house done rather than looking at a blank air and trying to figure out how you're going to build this house and what's going to hold the wood up and what's going to hold the roof up. Now the, the frame is there and now I can do the plumbing and electricity and I can get the siding on and, um, and put the windows in. Uh, and, and then it's fun for me. Then I just go really fast. I, I write scripts you know, really, really fast, the first drafts anyway. And then it takes a long time to rewrite them as we spoke about earlier. And you stand when you write? I do, yes. I have a stand. Like Hemingway? Yes. Did he stand? I thought yeah, I he did, that. yeah. Huh. I thought he did, but maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Ahead of his time. Well, I mean, but you do get more energy standing. You know, I mean, yeah. that's the standing desk. It, it, yeah. it, when you sit, it, it really, I don't know. I mean, there are times when, you know, take a break and sit, but right. standing, right. you really, the blood's flowing. and I've and, come to just love it, and I really rely on it now. And I find that if I'm really trying to puzzle out uh, a plot, hole or something really spongy that I can't get, I will sometimes sit. And in my office at home, I'm lucky enough to have this like window seat. And so I'll just go sit there for a little while and try to think it, think it through. And then I'll get something and I'm back to the desk and, you know, but standing gives me a lot more energy and, and uh, I really, really like it. I think you've said as a filmmaker, at times you've tended to feel a little bit in a vacuum with the creative process. Can you explain what well, that means? Well, you know, I think it's always a, a bit of a danger um, to be, you know, you get so caught up in the process of making a film uh, and it, it consumes so much of your life, and your energy, and your relationships that you, know, you can become so focused on it that you're not open anymore to what's going on, you know, around it. Um, and it's just, it's just a dangerous thing, and not only for the actual process of filmmaking, but just in your life as a filmmaker. And it's, again, something that um, this is the second time I've mentioned Los Angeles in maybe not the best way, so I don't mean to be piling up on Los Angeles, but uh, during the time, like, I've lived out here um, in, in various stages of my life, and what I've always felt at the times I've lived here is that the film business, show business, can just so easily take over all of your... Uh, all of your senses. It's everywhere you look. You know, it's every billboard, everything you see around you, everyone around you is writing a script. You go to Starbucks, there's 10,000 people there writing. Uh, in fact, one uh, years ago, one news station um, put a reporter in front of the Village Theater in Westwood. And everybody walked by and just said, how's your script coming? <laughs> like, everybody. Oh, my third act. So, you know, I mean, everybody had an answer for that. So, um, I do think that, for me, the advantage of living in a place like New York is that I'm exposed, whether I like it or not, to every aspect of life, every other profession. You know, uh, where I live in New York, my neighbor is an engineer, another neighbor is a lawyer, um, a guy down the block is a plumber. And you know, they get a kick out of what I do, but they're not, like, overly impressed by it. You know, it's just like, it's, oh, yeah, that's fun. That must be fun. I don't know. Um, but it, it helps keep you grounded, I think, uh, and out of that vacuum, because that's where creativity dies. And that's where I feel like you start to, in your storytelling, you start to reference things that are not real, 
things from show business or things from other movies or other TV. Uh, if you're not exposed enough to what's happening in life, uh, you know, you can be a little narrow, I think. You had mentioned old Hollywood and, and your love for that. There's a book about how Marilyn Monroe left L.A. for a while and went to New York. Oh, really? Yeah. And so they, they put a wig on her, a dark wig. They put her on a plane. I guess she, I don't know if she was out of her contract or she wanted out, but so things weren't good in Hollywood, so she wanted to go to New York. And they took her to the closest place, which was Connecticut, which they thought was New York. But, <laughs> and so she stayed there, but then eventually made her way to New York City. And uh, for a brief time, just felt very uh, free and, and was able to, you know, start working on projects. But then sadly came back to L.A., but uh, just, just wanted out of that same bubble. Yeah, yeah well, that's smart. It's a smart thing to do. And I think that's why many actors choose to live, if not in New York, but, but outside of Hollywood you know, whatever that means today. But, um, you know, they go buy a ranch in Montana. They'll go, you know. And I think that's helpful for their process to, to be in touch with real life and real people, especially for an actor, you know. Um, so I admire that. I do. How has your screenwriting process evolved over the years? You know, it, it has pretty much stayed the same. You know, I, uh, I get the idea. I think about the idea. I don't, I don't start writing anything for a while. I just, something comes to me and go, oh, that's, hmm, I didn't think about that. And then I'll find myself in the shower thinking about it, or walking down the street thinking about it. I get another little idea. I get a lot of ideas when I'm driving and listening to music. I get a lot of inspiration. Suddenly out of nowhere, like, oh, wow, that's the thing. Yes, okay. So then eventually when I feel like I have enough now to actually put something on paper, I'll open up a new document and I'll just, if I have a title for it, if I don't, there'll just be a new story. And I'll write down whatever it is I've been thinking about, just kind of spitball it. And then I'll start returning to that and just seeing how I can flesh that out um, and ultimately try to get to a beginning, middle, and an end, just in the, in the broadest strokes, um, just sort of work that out. And then once I've got that, um, then I try actually writing an outline. So just like a scene-by-scene -scene outline of what happens next and what happens in... And from the initial page, I already know kind of where the midpoint is and I know how I want it to end, but I don't know much else. So those little beats, you know, help me. And those are the most difficult things to do because you're just pulling stuff out of the air, um, just, just making stuff up, which is, you know, I'm complaining about it, but that's, that's my job, you know, but it's the hardest part of it. Uh, and you're just trying to build the story and build the plot and build the characters just piece by piece and scene by scene. And that, that could take me months to, to, to just keep working that and doing that. And then once I've got that outline done, um, I'll try to put it aside for a while, work on something else for a week or so, and then come back to it a little bit fresh. And I've had my wife read it and, and get her feedback. And then, um, then I just, uh, once I feel like I'm, I've, there's always this moment, and maybe one thing has changed over the years that I, I recognize it more clearly now, but there's a moment in the outline where you feel like, okay, I, I'm ready for the script now. Uh, I can't really spend any more time speculating about what's going to happen with this, in the outline. I have to now go into this, the script and write the script. And then that's a great, exciting place to be. And then um, I just start writing the script and I follow the outline. Uh, I, you, know, you take left turns, something else happens along the way, you get a different idea. The character wants to do something else, so you deviate from the outline. But basically, I try to just go straight through that process and write that script from beginning to end. 
And if I get a different idea about something that I realize could be a profound idea for the script, but it's going to mean reworking the whole first act, I'll just, again, open up another document and I'll put that idea there and then go on and just keep writing until I get to the end. You know, for me, and people think, oh, you're so disciplined. But I think it's actually because I'm not disciplined. You know, if I don't impose this to, to just go through, I'll just, uh, you know, oh, let me, what, what did I write last night? Oh, that's no good. I better rewrite that, you know. And, uh, oh, maybe there's something better at the beginning. And before you know it, you just get this jumble, you don't know what it is anymore. And, and that's exactly what I would do <laughs> if I didn't force myself to go all the way through. And, and you know, just because it works for me doesn't mean it works for everybody else. People have different ways of writing. You know, um, uh, some people depend on rewriting as they go. They can't do it any other way. You've got to look at what they did yesterday, rewrite that, get that perfect or as perfect as they can. Uh, and that's absolutely valid. It works for them. But that wouldn't work for me. We talked about Stephen King uh, in the previous segment, maybe. Do you have an imaginary uh, reader that you write for? He talked about that in On Writing. So people are writing for someone that's been dead for 15 years and others, yeah. uh, a harsh high school teacher, you know. It's usually my wife, Melissa. Okay. I want her to be impressed. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really write with the idea often of... Uh, she'll love this. You know, she'll be impressed. She'll think I'm really smart because I've written this. You know, and it's helpful. You know, it's uh, you know, and then it's it's dis discouraging when I realize I failed. <laughs> you know, when, when she doesn't always react that way to everything I write. But um, you know, I learn from that and and go on to make it better. And is there a particular style of music you listen to? You said while you're driving, you you come up with great. Oh ideas. well, when I'm driving, I love to listen to anything. I sing, and I just make a complete fool of myself when I'm driving. <laughs> and, and I have a convertible, so it's even worse. You know, everyone can see me. Um, there are kids pointing at me as they drive away. <laughs> but I love it. I, I, I sing. I just get very involved in the music. And I, you know, I love the music mostly of my era. You know, I love '70s music, and 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 I love the classics from the '50s and '60s. And, Rolling Stones. And Rolling Stones yeah. and, and Bruce Springsteen, who still is a force today, of course. Sure. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, I, and you know, just, I love the just emotional kind of stuff that I can get feelings out. When I'm writing, I listen to music also, but I listen to, I tend to listen to film scores. Um, and you know lyrics because that would distract me. But that's enormously helpful to, to listen to music as I write. It's, and I've got an enormous collection of scores that I listen to. So Lou Reed driving down the street, and yeah. then and then uh, Ennio Morricone when I'm writing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How does a writer create conflict? Uh, well, that's a great question, and it's an important one because that is really the central thing about drama. I think is you know conflict, and it doesn't have to be um, people in you know major you know fisticuffs. You know, kind of, I mean, conflict used to be anything where someone disagrees with you. You know, a scene where two characters agree on everything is dull. Nobody wants to watch that. You know? So um, it is important, I think, to, oh, even in the most innocuous seeming scene, uh, to have some sort of conflict. Which is, you know, what I want is at odds with what you want, and how are we going to resolve that? And again, you know, I always just draw on my personal stuff, what things that drive me crazy. If it's not something overtly obvious from the story. You know, this is a bad guy, here's the villain, here's a, we, we know what that conflict is. But just when two characters are in a scene, and it just could be it's just something as simple as, as the way they eat something differently, one thing it annoys the other person, um, you know, you crunch so loud, I can't stand Just the little things in life, and, and, and we talked about before, specificity. 
that maybe people feel like I recognize that. Yes, that's like my wife. You know, my husband does that. Um, so again, it's just about being observant and looking around you and, and watching what people do and what drives them crazy. What is meaningful conflict and what isn't? I think for it to be meaningful, it has to be true to who the people are. Um, it's got to be something that, that comes from their personalities, something that comes from their needs, uh, as opposed to something, I can't think of an example, but you know, if, if you try to impose a false conflict on two people because you want them to fight or you want them to be at odds with each other, but if it's not something that's true to who they are, um, then the audience, just, just, they, they may know why they're disconnecting, but they just sort of disconnect, doesn't feel real. Does it feel like this is this is germane to the relationship or you know who these people are? It just feels false or can feel false. If conflict were a graph, let's say in a screenplay, uh, would there be levels? Maybe s small uh, starting out, but then almost like a roller coaster. Absolutely, anything in a screenplay has to have you know peaks and valleys. It just can't be one thing all the way through. Even if it's an action movie, it can't be action all the time. There has to be a break. It has to be, you know a comedy can't be, you know, just wall-to-wall -wall last because you get numb to it after a while. The audience just gets numb. And um, so I feel like you really have to balance. It's a balancing act of, you know, we're going to build up to this and then we're going we're to take a breath and come down and then build to this. And, and that's across all the, uh, the emotions, really, in, in the script. What's your process for discovering the emotional core of a story? For me, it's, it's just really as simple as, do I feel it? You know, is this a story I want to tell because I, I feel something about it, that it reverberates, you know, in me somewhere. Um, but there's, I mean, there's really not a process per se that I use to come to that or determine that, or it's, it's just a, about emotion and do I feel it or not? You know, it's kind of, I mean, luckily, I guess, simple. And so when you're writing dialogue, um, do you come back in and do that separately? Do you just kind of get the structure of the scene? No, I, I usually do it at the same time. Sometimes, though, I'll, because uh, I love dialogue. You know, I love writing dialogue. I love listening to these characters and, and, you know, making them really different from each other and how they, but sometimes if I'm really on a roll with a scene and I don't want to stop to think about uh, a technical thing about where we are in the scene or the characters moving, are they sitting, are they leaving, uh, I'll just write the dialogue like a play. I'll just go through the scene and finish the scene with the dialogue. And then I'll go back and, and, and figure out where we are. You know, he's moving to here and we're making dinner, you know, whatever that is. Um, so it doesn't seem like a play. Uh, but um, sometimes dialogue, I just, it just goes and, and I just have to catch up with it, you know, keep up with it. And you feel those characters, that's when the characters are pushing back and they're, they're taking a, a life of their own. A lot of times in the, in the dialogue and in the behavior, you know, um, I'll, suddenly I'll write something for the character, and it's like, well, it doesn't sound right. It's not, it's not really true. This does not sound like this character talking. And I'll have to think about that. I'll try again. I'll try a different word, different. It's still not. It's still fighting me. And I'll have to think about. Okay, so maybe this character doesn't want to be saying this. Doesn't want to be doing this in the scene. So what's the opposite of it? What? What? Maybe that's what we have to look at. And the same thing with behavior. I'll have a character doing something um, that 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 reveals who they are, but. It feels false. It's, it's not coming. I can't get the idea. And that's when I know I can't force it. I can't, you know, pry it in there. I, I have to go back and try to figure out what's missing. 
um, is there. And, and opposites are a great writing tool. Uh, so what's the exact opposite of this? And, and this, this is not always the answer, but it helps you sometimes get to an answer. The TV show Ghost Whisperer, you were the show creator? Well, here, here's, how that, here's how that show came about. I had been doing a lot of movies for CBS at that time. And I had no interest in TV series. I didn't want to direct episodes. You know, just well, I didn't have disdain for it. It just wasn't something I was interested in. I just like the idea of the same characters all the time. And so um, I always uh, avoided it. And there was an executive who I liked very much named Bella Bajaria at CBS. And she called me one day and said that she had just met this woman. Uh, and I think she met her through James Van Prague, a famous psychic. And... Uh, uh, this woman had been brought to L.A. because she, her talent is that she can make ghosts or haunting you go away. She can see them if they're earthbound, and she can convince them to cross over. And so there were people at CBS who were having problems that they felt were being caused by ghosts in their house. And when James told them about this woman, Marianne, who lived in Ohio, they brought her in. And apparently it was very successful. She immediately identified who their ghosts were, and got rid of them. So uh, Bella called me and said, look, whether you believe any of this or not, I think there might be a series here. There might be something about this woman, and you should meet her. And so I was in L.A., and, and Marianne was because she had, just, had cleared their houses. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to meet her. And I, we met at a Starbucks in Studio City. And I walk in, and I'm expecting to see some like ethereal-looking you know, person. <laughs> But instead is this very solid, down-to-earth, just salt-of-the-earth kind of woman. And with her husband, who's an ex-Marine, you know, buzz cut, tattoos, you know. And I sat there and talked with them, and she was so wonderful and kind and funny and good-hearted. And, you know, wasn't full of herself, didn't feel like she had the answers to all the world's problems. You know, her thing is she grew up being able to see ghosts, and she learned how to make them go away. And so I, was, I really became fascinated by this because, of course, I, I love horror. I love gothic horror. Um, and so I asked her, I said, well, so you just see ghosts all the time? I said, yeah, I can't turn it off. She said, I try not to let them sometimes know that I see them because then they bother me. You know? So they want something from me. So I said, well, how about right now? And so, yeah, there's three ghosts right here in the Starbucks. And she said, explain that. That guy over there, I think it's probably his mother. She's looking at him. She doesn't seem to be very approving. And this person over here, I think it might be his son. And it was kind of really, you know, like the hair on my neck kind of went up a little bit. And that scene, by the way, is in the pilot of, of, the, of the show. And so I drove away thinking, wow, so, you know, gothic horror, ghost stories with character-driven drama. I thought this could be a great way to meld those two passions of mine. And so I called the executive back. I said, yeah, I, I'd love to write this pilot. And, you know, who knows? And so we made a deal, and I wrote the pilot, and I thought, you know, I'll write this, and then I'll go on back to my regular life making movies, because, you know, what's the chance of a pilot being made? And, and I've never written a pilot, it'll be very interesting. So I wrote the pilot, and they really liked the pilot, and they said, let's shoot it. I said, okay, wow. So, well, I've never made a pilot. It'll be fun to do a pilot. It'll never go to series, because, the, you know, the mortality rate is huge in these things. And so I shot the pilot, and they said, okay, we like this pilot, let's do 13 episodes. And then I really got panicky. I thought, my God, I have to do this 13 more times, you know, come up with stories. Ah, you know, how can I do this? Um, but we did it, and we got a great writing staff together, and Marianne was very helpful. She 
you know, a consultant, a lot of things. And it was an opportunity for me to really deal with all my fears about death and, and um, grief and loss. And that's how I approached the show. It was, it was my chance to work through all my issues about this stuff. And at the same time, to try to um, treat death in a way that could maybe give somebody some hope. Maybe there is something a little more than we, we know out there. And so I got really turned on by it. And, and that's, you know, then I, little did I know I would spend the next five years of my life basically making that, making that show. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience. We had a great cast. There was, um, I mean, everyone got along. There was no drama behind the camera. It was just a really wonderful experience. And I loved it as a filmmaker because of the speed. You know, I would get an idea, um, go home, write it, and I could literally see it on the air in four weeks. And, you know, it was a hit show. People, a lot of people watched it, and we got a lot of amazing and very moving feedback from people. And um, it was just a tremendous experience. And we did one episode, because uh, I was trying to work out my fear of flying. Oh, <laughs> like, I still don't quite get flight. I don't understand how we can sit in this kerosene-filled tube and hurtle through space at 600 miles an hour. And somehow we know where we're going. We land in this exact spot, you know, five hours later. I just don't get how that works or why it works. And so every time I'm in a plane, I think at some point, you know, God is going to look down and say, what do they think they're doing? They can't do that. So... Um, I fly all the time, as we all you know, we have to, but I, I'm terrified of it. So I did an episode where a plane crashed in their town. And Melinda comes out of her store and sees this billowing smoke you know, from the, the, where, where the crash was. And then coming up the street are 150 ghosts who just came off this plane. And so it was a double episode that we did, and it was fantastic for me in every way. Because I could, I had, I could through the other characters, I could deal with not only the fear of flying, but you know this whole idea of mass loss and uh, grieving and how do you let it go and all that stuff. And so they were very successful episodes. I'm still afraid of flying, um, but uh, it was a great example of why I love working on that show. Um, I could just work out so much of this stuff. Were there certain areas that she couldn't go into because? It was just too many ghosts and it was too tragic for her? Not really. I mean, there were moments where she felt the heaviness of tragedy and, you know, she'd be depressed. Uh, I'm talking about the real Marianne. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but for the most part, um, you know, and there was, <laughs> when she actually crossed somebody over, there was really no, you know, she did it all sort of mentally. She would just kind of go into this, you know, she'd just be quiet and she's communicating with this ghost mentally. And she okay, he's gone. <laughs> you know, what? So on the show, of course, we had to kind of pretty that up a bit. You know, we had to have a... We never, we never did the light or anything, but we always did interesting ways for people to cross over and, and you know, look magical and fun, and sometimes scary. Um, but uh, it was just, a, I, I just... It's one of the highlights of my life doing that, doing that show. Is it still available for people to watch? I know the series is no longer... But... It is. It's on Hulu, I think. Um, it's all over. And... It's playing all over the world. I mean, there's never a moment where it's not playing somewhere. It's amazing. It's like 127 different countries. People really love it. And I, and I think that the reason it struck a chord, it's not because it's such a brilliant show or, you know, 
Um, it's, it's not art. But I think that um, after 9-11, we came on in 2005, so we weren't that far out. But I really think there was a hunger out there for hope and to try to find uh, some way to believe that there's more beyond, that there's maybe... A, I think it just gave people an appetite for wanting to believe that there's just more than just what we're seeing here. And I really think that, that that's what struck... Certainly a lot of the letters we got um, spoke to that. Mm. It was pretty great. Can you take us into the writer's room for Ghost Whisperer? So how would you structure different episodes? How would the writers work with each other? Well, that's an interesting question because I never quite got comfortable in the writer's room environment. It was one of my, I, I, you could probably say one of my failings as a showrunner, I suppose. But um, having been a solitary writer for 25 years of my career at the time I started that show, it suddenly became really difficult to sit in a room. We had a great staff, smart. We had playwrights. We had really smart people in that room. And to be able to instantly identify ideas. That's good, that's bad, that's good, that's bad, that's good. Um, I found that really difficult because I, I just kind of, I'm used to the page and the keyboard and thinking through everything, not necessarily slowly, but on my own without anybody watching the process, you know, or being asked to deliver an instant verdict on something. So I, I found it really difficult um, I, I listen to someone's idea. Wow, that's great. That's a great idea. And then somebody else has it. That, that's even better. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. You know? <laughs> and I'd be confused. I, I, wouldn't, you know, I would always have to take all the stuff and go back to my desk and try to make my own sense of it. So after a while, what we did uh, was um, we would convene in the writer's room at the beginning of the season and lay out basic big things we wanted to do. Um, in, in terms of themes and also just story arcs and who, where we're going to bring this character through by the end of the season, we want them to be here. Um, and then when we started getting comfortable enough that we had scripts to start writing, we would just go back to our own offices and start writing. And then basically I would then work with the writers one-on-one, -on -one, which I was much more comfortable with than being in the atmosphere of a free-for-all kind of room. And, you know, the network would get upset about this. They were like, well, that's not the way we do it. You know, well, it's the way I do it. And it seems to be working. And the writers seemed to like it. They, they seemed to like having the one-on-one -on -one attention. And, and, you know, if they collectively came up with a problem or something to solve, they were free to convene the room without me if I wasn't there, if I might have been directing or something. And then they could call on the power of the room to solve a thorny plot problem. But, you know, pretty much I worked... Um, you know, kind of one-on-one. -on -one. And then in the third season, uh, I was getting a little bit anxious to move on. I felt like it got to the point where I would be on a set and I could no longer think of a different way to shoot the set. You know, I've been in this kitchen now, how many times? You know. So I was anxious to try to do different things, although I still love the show. Um, so we brought in a, a great showrunner named P.K. Simmons. Um, and he and I worked together in season three. And then he took over in season four and five. And I had the great opportunity then of just writing and directing a couple of episodes a season. You know, they would just say, which one do you want to do? Okay, I'm going to do these. And that was really great because I was free then of the, the note sessions from the network. And, uh, you know, I could just be a filmmaker and make these movies and then develop other things I wanted to, to develop. 
Um, and PK took the show in really interesting directions and, and, uh, uh, and it continued to do really well in the ratings and, you know, the tra transition was pretty seamless. Um, and so, you know, it was a five-year run and uh, it changed my life in many ways. And, um, you know, the profits from that show helped me make my short films, you know, which I'm really grateful for. And I've made friendships on the show that, you know, to this day I still maintain. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a very golden time for, as a filmmaker who loves the process of being on the set. I love directing. I love working with the actors and the crew. I love the cameras. I love everything about it. So to be able to do it so often, you know, was just so great. Um, because, you know, TV, we were making 22 of these a year, you know, 22 hours a year. So I could, I could be directing a bunch of them. You know, it's a great experience. Lots of fun. But then in terms of the writing, it sounds like because you were used to being a solitary writer, standing at a desk or whatever your process was, that that, yeah, I think that would be difficult for a lot of people, a, a room with many different agendas, even if everything's harmonious, just to have so much going on. Yeah, you know, it, it, I hate to say it, but so the democracy of it uh, threw me um, because, you know, as a solitary writer, you're just used to this, you get your own ideas you vet them, you throw them out, you accept them. Uh, but now you suddenly have to learn how to accept new ideas. And, and, and you know, for a series, it's really important. You got You can't really you can't be just one person's vision really to make a good series. You need uh, people who can bring different skill sets to the table. And we had that on Ghost Whisperer, and I feel like we made good use of that, even though we had a, a rather unusual structure. But when PK came in, you know, he he had grown up in the uh, room system. And so for season three, four, and five, we had the room. And everybody, did, you know, was great. And, and, you know, the room is also a trap because uh, you've got a room full of eight really bright people. And, you know, you start telling stories and it's funny. And, you know, half a day goes by and your sides hurt from laughing so much. But oops, we didn't really solve episode three, did we? <laughs> you know? So there was a lot of that too. But a lot of great food, I'm sure, too. Yes, too much food, really <laughs> difficult. And in, uh, we were at Universal, and uh, you know what's what's crazy about Universal is that the tram, you know, the the tourist tour, and I can tell all you tourists, they do go through everywhere where movies are really being made, uh, because we would just have to watch right outside the writers' room, the tram would go by, and here's the famous room where all these TV shows are written. Yeah. So uh, one of our writers, Catherine Butterfield, developed uh, tram theater, where you know they'd be bored and they would, when they saw a tram coming, they'd go outside on the on the little sidewalk outside our writers' room and they would start arguing with each other. They start a fight. They start you know and something to, to give the, the the tram people something to look at when they walk by. So you know the highlight of their day was tram theater. So this is the kind of thing that could happen in the room. <laughs> Did every episode of Ghost Whisperer have the same structure? Yes. That was, you know, one thing about CBS. And again, you know, it's a funny story because when I sold, I mean, even though they, they came to me with, with this notion, I had to fashion a pitch and I had to go back to them and say, okay, here's how I would do this show. And they said, great, do it. And, and, and uh, one of the top executives said to me was, what we love about your pitch is, is that it's not like anything else we have on the air. And I said, great. And then we started the development process, during which they made it as much as possible like every other show they had on the air. You know? It was just funny. It's like they can't help themselves. It's like this knee-jerk reaction. Um, however, having said that, you also have to respect the fact that at least then, I'm not sure about now,
But then CBS was the top network. They were knocking out of the park. So you can't argue with that kind of success. Uh, someone somewhere knows what they're doing. So I try to have a good attitude about it, and I want to have a successful show. So I took their notes, and we tried to make them as much as possible, uh, doable, and not violate you know, what we felt the show could stand for. And, and you know, we would push back sometimes, and they'd back off. We made a good argument for them. They weren't just dictatorial about it. Um, but it was kind of interesting how it became a more of a procedural about how to solve a mystery every week. Uh, and that's, it's, that's a CBS brand, really, is every show they do, whether it's CSI, whatever it is, it's a procedural. So that was the biggest kind of template that they uh, kind of uh, imposed on it, was that we had to stick to this thing. But I tried to encourage them to let us do um, some serialization where we could have a character who shows up in this episode, and then again, four episodes later, uh, and, and continue their story over an arc of episodes. And they resisted that at first. Nope, we want close-ended episodes. We don't want a situation where someone watches episode five and they didn't see episode two or three, and we want them to feel they've missed nothing. You know, they we want to know that they're watching this and they can just pick up where they left off. I said, yes, I get that, but it's dull. You know, so can we just, for, the, for those who might want something a little more, can we add a little thing in here? And they finally started letting us do it, do it. just little by little. We were bringing these characters who were either ghosts or represented the dark side of ghosts. And, and it became more interesting for all of us then to make the show because we, get, we had a little more going on than just a simple story that had to be solved you know, in, in 40 minutes every week. Did viewer feedback factor in? to different things in the story? I don't remember ever having that happen. Um, we got a lot of great touching. You know, we got a letter once from a grave digger. And this guy was saying how he sees this grief all the time at cemeteries. Um, and he's just this invisible person. No one really pays attention to the grave digger. But, uh, and, you know, I always want to do an episode like that. And I'm not sure why we never did, but... Uh, it was a very moving letter, and he was talking about how much he loved the show and how, how much it meant to him emotionally, uh, and it helped him deal more positively with some of the things that he saw just in his job every day, you know, kids weeping and, the, you know. Um, so we got a lot of moving. We got another letter once from uh, this, uh, an older man, and he was saying how much he loved watching the show with his wife, and he would hold her hand throughout the whole show. But as the letter went on, it became clear that his wife was dead and not with him anymore. And so we had this, you know, so we, we, we get these letters that would just give us goosebumps and you know, we'd love. However, the things that did affect oftentimes, which, you know, was never fun for us, you know, CBS uh, would often would have a knee-jerk reaction to something that would happen on one of their other shows. So, for instance, you know, if, if um, a character behaved in a certain way in an episode of The Mentalist or something else that was on then, uh, and the ratings dropped a fraction of a point during that scene. They come back and say, okay, now in your show, your next episode, you got someone doing this, can't do that. Uh, we dropped on that one, we can't do it. And they'd be like, come on, you know. But we'd have to res respect that and, and do that, you know. And I always felt that was a little bit, and I envied shows that had enough episodes in the can where they, 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 they had enough lead time so they couldn't really respond that quickly. But we oftentimes were only a couple of weeks ahead of airing while we were shooting. So, you know, so um, that, was, that was the only thing that outside influence that you know, really 
affected sometimes the, the direction of our show. So policies across the board. So if saying a certain word or whatever scenario lost the audience or offended them in some way. Right, then, right. Oh, just kind of knee-jerk panic thing of like, oh, can't do that. Yeah. And you know, there's another process too. Um, we have focus groups, which I think is probably responsible for more dull television than any other single thing. And you, know, you have to sit there and you're in this room behind a mirror and they've got a test audience and already you're in trouble because the test audience, they're from LA, half of them are already in the business, they don't want to admit it, it's crazy. And so they're, they've got a dial and all they have to do is when they like something, turn the dial this way, when they don't like it, turn it that way. So we'd have a scene in the pilot where the two main characters were arguing. You know, important scene, conflict, arguing, and they don't like it because they, you know, it's an argument and these people love each other, they shouldn't be fighting. But you, get, you know, you you got to have it. <laughs> you know, it's going to be okay. They're going to make up. It's going to be all right. But that feedback would say, "Oh no, you can't have conflict. You know, people don't. It turns them off. They don't like it. They're going to turn the TV. They're going to turn something else on." So we often have to fight to keep conflict in in the show. In fact, if I may, even go a little deeper, in the pilot script originally, um, my the way I had written it was that the uh, Melinda, the lead, was about to get married and she had not yet told her husband that she can see ghosts. And so on the eve of her wedding, she was really in tremendous anguish about how to do this. And she talked at length with his brother, her brother-in-law, about what to do and how to do it and the best way to approach it. You know, And, and, and the way she finally broke it to him was she said to him, you know, I was talking to your brother last night. And he says, my brother's been dead for five years. And that's how she, and the network said, no, no, we don't want, she can't keep him in the dark. It's not good. The audience won't like it. Um, you know, it, it's too much conflict. And I was heartbroken. It's like, you got to be kidding me. You know, what a, what a great dilemma for this character. So we have to have it that he knew from the beginning. He approved of it. He was fine with it. Yeah, so it was, I still managed to get the brother in there, but you know, that was the kind of thing that you know was difficult um, uh, to hear and and to execute. Um, and again, you have to say to yourself, you know, they're successful; they they know their audience. Um, you know, we'll give it a try. But ultimately, we were, as they trusted us more, we could push back a little more against their notes. And and when they saw the result of the shows, and they were happy with the show, and the shows were doing well. Then they they did lean, you know lean back a little bit and and not be quite as drastic with their thoughts. What are the best ways for directors and actors to unpack a screenplay? You know the first thing is that you want to meet and talk with the actor as a director and before you cast them you know, hopefully and um, and I'm talking about in terms of like stars who are going to be made an offer. You're not going to have a chance to necessarily audition them. Or, but if you're, if you're dealing with a, a name sort of actor, you want to make sure you can sit and talk with them and just know you, you're going to make the same movie. Uh, because it's really a bummer when you get on the set and you realize this actor sees a whole other movie. And you may not win that battle because it's, <laughs> they are oftentimes more important to the studio than the directors are. So... 
Um, so it's important to have the dialogue going and just be sure, like, we see this movie the same way and we feel its character the same way. Um, so that, you know, that's an important thing. And most good actors will do their own breakdowns. Used to be like, well, years ago when I was getting started, I used to write biographies for every character I'd written. You know, into their childhoods, what formed them. I, mean, I would spend weeks and weeks and weeks doing this. I would give them to the actor and I would say, look, this is not a Bible. Um, this is just something for you to reference. And if there's something you want to use, great. If not, throw it away. And usually they were grateful. Sometimes they were like, yeah, okay. Hmm. Um, but I've learned now that good actors will do that already. And they want to bring their own thing to this character's backstory. They don't necessarily want my take, the writer's take or the director's take. They want to find their own way into this character, the same way I have to find my own way into a story. So unless it's something really critical about that backstory that, that informs you know, an important behavioral point in the, in the movie, um, I don't do that anymore because I know they're going to they're gonna fill in those blanks for themselves. And uh, uh, you know, I think really it, it's just about discussion, most of all. You know, I do rehearse, but for me, a, a valid rehearsal is just as much just sitting over dinner and just talking about where we think this character has been and what we think they want, all those things as a writer you do, um, where the character's going. And um, we just sort of discuss different approaches. And uh, so, you know, hopefully by the time you start shooting, you have answered each other's questions about the direction of this character, how this character is going to become, you know, come to life on screen. And so, you know, from there, I don't tend to do heavy blocking rehearsals, like Sidney Lumet famously rehearses for two weeks like a play, you know, marks out the locations, the props, you know, furniture, and he has the actors go through every scene, start to finish like a play. And that works great for him, and, and obviously, you know, Sidney Lumet movies are fantastic. Um, I, I don't want to um, pin it down that much. And also, I've rarely had the luxury of time. I mean, you know, I'm trying to make it sound like uh, I've made a choice about the rehearsal, but really it's mostly because I only get a couple of days tops and I want to rehearse with the, you know, I don't really do, we do like a table read with everybody, but then I want to break them up into groups um, and, and just kind of work more intimately with them. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of it's discussion and, and how to, um, what, what, what the big moments are in the script uh, we like to talk. I like to talk about the scenes with the actors, and I like to ask them questions. Um, I like to instead of coming in and saying, "Well, here's what I think about this character. I think this guy," I like to say, "Well, what do you think you're after in this scene?" You know, uh, and I like to say, "What do you think is the most important thing you say in this scene?" And I learn a lot from that because oftentimes it's not what I think at all, but it's better than what I thought, or just different in a way that I can say, "Oh, this is where he's going to go with that. That's great." Um, so I, I tend to now just be much more interested in what the actor feels about it uh, and, and what their take is on where a scene is going to go. Or, uh, and, you know, just getting off the, your, the topic of your question for a bit, but just in terms of casting, you know, it's so important because of this process to cast that right actor. You know, and, and you know the old joke, it's 50% the director's job, whatever it is, but it's, it's like 90% of the director's job get that right actor in that, in that role. Um, because it's not my job as a director to teach someone how to act or to teach them how to be in this role. Um, they got to come with their game and they're going to they're gonna play to win. 
And so you've got to be sure that that actor is, is, sees it the way you do and is going to give you what, you, what, the, what the role needs. Because if not, you know, you really can't reasonably expect the actor to completely, okay, no, I need you, to, this is all wrong, you know, come, come at this from a completely different direction. That's rarely going to work. You know, most actors are just not going to respond to that. And so you're sort of stuck with what, what their interpretation is. So casting, most important thing in the world <laughs> to, to do. And with this backstory that you would prepare, it sounds like a lot of it, maybe the audience wasn't even privy to some of what it was. The, you know, most, none of it. You know, it's really just about giving the actor a sense of uh, their own context. But I don't do it anymore. Um, like I said, because it's, it's just uh, the actors kind of do it for themselves, and I don't want them to feel like I'm imposing this idea on them. You know, if they need something from me, they know they can come to me and say, "What do you think?" You know, and that's that's great. But for the most part, uh, I, I trust them to you know, figure them their characters out. What's your process for reading a screenplay that someone else wrote? Um, you know, I try to imagine myself as the viewer. Um, and uh, you know, I try just to clear my mind of all the things that I know about how movies are made and just try to concentrate on the story and the characters. I usually have to read a script twice to, to really get it. Um, uh, and if I, if I choose to do it, then you know, many more times. But uh, sometimes I'm, I'm more able to find flaws in other people's scripts than in my own. So I can, if someone, a friend of mine gives me a script to read, I can give him fantastic notes and feedback, but I, I can't do it on my own script. I have to have somebody else look at it and tell me where I've gone wrong. You know, this strange blindness that you get. What's the wrong way for a director to read a screenplay? I, I guess, you know, I mean, there's, there's probably a couple of wrong ways, but uh, the, the, the first wrong way is to read it like a person in the film business. You know, you want to try to read it like an audience, which is difficult because it's got nomenclature and technology and, and you know, words and technical stuff in it that doesn't make it feel like it's a reader-friendly experience. But um, the challenge, I think, is to try to f just forget everything you know and read this thing and just have a visceral emotional reaction to it. Do I feel for these characters? Do I want to tell the story? Do I want to find out what happens after this is over? Um, those are the kinds of correct things, uh, you know, to, to bring to it. So I guess uh, the incorrect things are, you know, just if you're too conscious of the process, that's a big scene, man. How, how am I going to do that? That's like a thousand extras. You know, are they going to give me the money to do that? You know, I'm going to need a crane here. You know, that's for later. Um, you just want to try to, can, do I connect with this on any kind of human level? You know, do I care about these people? So then the latter is how someone in the industry would, an industry read would go instead of, yeah, for lack of a better term, I realize this sounds very woo-woo, but a heart read. <laughs> I guess so, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good way to put it. That's, you know, it, it really is. You, you hope. When I write a script, I, I, I use very few technical terms. Uh, I make it very spare. Uh, my paragraphs are no more than four lines each. And I, I never, like, when I open up a script and I see a paragraph this long, oh God, you know, it's like dense, it's hard to read. So I try to make everything spare, reader-friendly, and I try to be careful not to ever describe something that can't be photographed. You know, I don't like to say, uh, you know, this character you know, walks in the room and uh, she feels totally out of place. What does that mean? 
you know, what's the behavior that tells us she feels totally out of place? Is she checking herself in the mirror a little bit? That's the kind of thing I want to put in my script and not just leave for a director to figure out. Like how, you know, the director's going to be me, so <laughs> I especially don't want to have to you know, figure that out. So that's something I always tell writers, you know, just don't write something you can't photograph. And um, so hopefully if someone reads my script, they're not going to be too bogged down in shots and all the technical stuff that gets in the way of the storytelling in that format. What is subtext? Well, subtext is critical also to writing and, and, and acting. But it's really what's not spoken. It's what's really happening in the scene, what someone's really feeling, thinking, but they're saying something else, covering it up. And, uh, you know, really, as a director, you're trying to direct the subtext in a scene. Um, so it's about identifying what that subtext is, and, and that's what the actors are you know, playing. Uh, and the words are, they're saying, you know, almost, they're, not that they're superfluous, but it, that's not really what's going on in the scene, <laughs> what they're saying. It's what they're thinking and feeling underneath. In fact, if I may digress a little bit, I, I just did a short film last year in Paris, a little spy thriller, a lot of fun. And I wanted to shoot it in French because I just didn't want to have French people speaking English with accents. It'd be ridiculous. You know? So we were going to subtitle it and shoot it in French. I don't speak French. So I had to learn a little bit of it uh, uh, phonetically just so I could kind of get recognize the words. My pr French producer, of course, was bilingual, so he would help me when the actors strayed. But the truth is, it didn't matter because I wasn't directing the words, I was directing what they were, their behavior, and what was behind those words. And that's why I was, I think I, I was able to pull it off, because I just wasn't worried about that and the fact that there wasn't that much dialogue. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so it really is important to know what the character's intentions are in the scene, how they're being thwarted, um, what they're really, what's going on underneath everything, that, that subtext. So even if you turn the sound down, you could still kind of feel it from the bottom. Ideally. In fact, I, I like to do an exercise with students from time to time. When I'm, I, I sometimes do classes on working with actors and directing actors. And I, I get a sample scene of two characters having lunch. And I have them memorize the scene. I don't give them any notes. But I say, you know, memorize the scene so when you come in tomorrow, you're off book and ready to do it. And so they come into the class and... We confirm we've never spoken about the scene, we haven't talked about it, nothing. So I have them just play the scene first with no direction at all whatsoever. And it's like a five-minute scene. Then I'll say, okay, so here now, um, you were late for this lunch again. And you're, you know, the scene partner, you are so fed up with this person being late that you want to just kill them. You feel disrespected, you feel, you know. And you, on the other hand, you feel like this person was judging you and, the, and so we didn't change a word of dialogue, or, or nothing else at all. And they came in and played this scene again, completely different scene. And we kept doing that with different, before, you know, four or five different permutations on, on what the subtext of the scene is. And it was a great way to illustrate for these students that, wow, you know, it really is about the subtlety, the nuance of behavior, um, the body language, uh, and you can add a different meaning to any scene. And do you let the other party know, the other actor know, the intention? Or do you do it in secret? Well, in this, it's a good idea to do that. In this case, I let them both know because it was instructive for the students. I wanted them to, you know, to hear it. But I have had moments when I've been directing where I've held something back from one actor. 
and given the information to another actor, not in a anything that's damaging or menacing or anything like that. You know, and there are other times where like I've, I've had two stars in a scene, and I felt like you know the one star was a little bit intimidated by this slightly bigger star he was in the scene with, and uh, I could just tell in the scene that that he was cowering just a little bit and and that wasn't really true for his character his character had to be had to stand up to this guy and so i just took him aside you know after between takes and i just said you know don't let him take the scene away from you and he instantly got it you know and then it was great then it was like fire because you know and, and so now they're kind of you know they're really in the scene together so sometimes you know withholding a little bit and, and giving extra information to somebody else is you know can be helpful what if a scene doesn't have any subtext? Then it's not a scene. It's, it's not shootable. It's not actable. And, and you know, it, you at least have to be able to put a subtext in it, you know. And I can't, actually, I can't even imagine a scene. Uh, I mean, a, a writer could have written a scene without subtext because they just are unconscious or just working on a very surface level. But anybody can, any director or actor can take a scene and insert subtext. It's the simplest thing in the world. You know, what, what just happened to me right before I entered the scene? What am I worried about? You know, I've got a pain in my rib that I'm really worried about, and I'm afraid to go to the doctor about it. These are things that are never spoken in the scene, but they're going to inform how the scene is played. Uh, so there's always got to be, got to be subtext. No such thing as no subtext. <laughs> and even if it's just one actor in a room and no one else enters that room? Yeah, yeah. It's still about what's, you know, what's really going on uh, with this person. What, what do they really want? How does a director help an actor convey subtext? So if I'm an actor in a scene and maybe it's another, you know, someone's late and they're always late, maybe it's my sister and they've always gotten away with being irresponsible and I've always had to be the responsible one. How are you helping me convey subtext to this late sister that's, she's not there and yeah, I'm mad, we've got reservations, I've got to be back at work. Right, right. You know, it, it's really about body language, uh, and I feel like it's dangerous for me to try to give them a specific thing to do, a behavioral thing to do, um, because it's, I don't want them to indicate, I don't want them to, um, uh, to feel like they're going to imitate me. Uh, you know, the same reason why I would, I would never give a line reading unless I'm asked for it, and oftentimes an actor will ask me, you know, just, just tell me, how do you hear it? You know? But other than that, I would never give a line reading. And I'm very um, hesitant to give too much of a specific you know, behavioral thing, but I just try to make it attitudinal. You know, how do you feel when this happens? The last time this happened, you know, how does it make you feel? And I just try to get them to summon their own feeling, not to try to give them one, but, but to try to just have them summon their own experience. I mean, everyone knows what it's like to be annoyed. You know. um, so I just try to encourage them to bring it from within, just like I would a writer or anyone else. So yeah, so you'd be more asking me as the actor, how is this making you feel, um, instead of like telling me the tone? Uh, right, I would just say, you know, this is the third time. This is the third time this week this has happened. You know, I don't know, I don't think she respects you. you know? And that usually will sure. you know, give some sort of honest, you know. <clears throat> so instead of me saying, look, tap your foot, look at your watch, you know, that's, that's, you know, no one wants to hear that. <laughs> sure. And no one wants to walk into a lunch like that either. Right, so, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it a director's job to make an actor feel safe? Yes. Probably the most important job. 
uh, of anything a director does. Because the actor is, to some extent, putting themselves in your hands because you're the judge. You're, you're watching what they're doing and you have to be careful not to let them look bad. So you want them to not feel... Because the problem is that if, it, if an actor develops a distrust for the director and they feel like they've got to direct themselves, it's problematic because now the feeling is that maybe I want to take a chance. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be too big here because I can't trust this person to, to tell me if I'm being too big. Uh, and so now you get a guarded performance that's not real, not true. So you want to try, and in some ways with actors you're just meeting, you can only do it by virtue of working together and trying, like proving it. Um, but you, you do want to make them feel like, look, I will not let you look bad, uh, and you're safe, and I want you to try. Give me everything. Just don't be afraid. And, and together we'll find the right tone and the right way to, to do it. Um, so it, it's, it's about building trust. It's the most important thing. What do you think they're afraid of looking bad at? It? They're overacting? I think overacting or underacting or just, you know, because uh, you always have, as a director, I think you always have to remember that it's the actor's ass that's out there. You know, that, that actor's on that screen. They're being judged. Uh, people in the audience are not saying, gee, that director, I don't know. You know, I think he gave him a bad, bad you know, piece of advice there. They'll just look at the actor and they're responding. That actor is making me feel I believe him or her or I don't. Um, so that's a heavy responsibility for an actor to carry. It's scary, frightening. That's why I think they're so brave. So they're going to go out there in this tightrope and they got to be sure that you're going to be able to tell them when they're, they're, they're stepping a little bit too far, you know, too far to the left and they're going to fall. Um, uh, because... I think I can't imagine a more bitter experience for an actor than to watch themselves on screen and think, oh my God, look how big I was there. And, and the director didn't catch it. And I, I'm, now I look like an idiot. Because you can't always know if you're an actor, if it's too big or too small. Or, you know, it's, I missed that opportunity. So it's a, and it's a big responsibility for a director. You know, it's a, it's a <laughs> scary responsibility. Um, but that's why one reason I love working with actors I've worked with before. It's great. You know, people I have relationships with, and we trust each other. We know each other. We have that shorthand. Um, it's a really nice uh, feeling. You think a lot of newer actors are afraid to look too big. I like how you said that. Go big, like you know, uh, you know, don't don't let them take this scene away from you. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I do think you always have to be careful. Uh, you know, just about because the camera is, you know, the camera sees things more clearly than than the naked eye, and you know, you know, close up and. Uh, you know, I remember we were we were discussing Carl Malden, uh, you know, earlier today. Actually, what a wonderful guy he was, what a great actor, kind of underrated, even though he's an Oscar winner, but he's an underrated actor. And I did a movie with him, and uh, it was a feature film, and it was shot on film. And so I'm doing his close-up, and I'm watching, and I, I, I just wasn't sure he was getting there. I, I was nervous. And I was only like 26, whatever, at the time. And so... I didn't quite have the courage to say to Carl Molden, Oscar winner, Ilya Kazan, working you know, actor, uh, hey, Carl, could you be a little... So I just kind of let it go. I thought, okay, if, if, if this doesn't work in the dailies, I'm going to try to find a way to reshoot this tomorrow and I'll, I'll just have to broach it with him. But when I saw the dailies, it was a whole different performance. What was happening in his eyes and the little thing in his mouth. And his, you know, he had a mastery of, of his, his instrument. And it wasn't visible on the street 
to the naked eye of me standing there three feet you know, behind the camera. But on screen, I saw, and I was so glad I didn't you know, say, Carl, could you make that a little, you know, <laughs> I would have given myself away as a you know, novice, which of course no one suspected otherwise anyway. But it was a great lesson that, that film actors, you know, especially experienced great film actors, know exactly how to modulate um, their, their performance depending on where the camera is. And sometimes you can see it with the naked eye, sometimes you can't. What do you think about actors giving you a different performance each take? You know, it's, um, it's a healthy thing, I think. It's, you know, as long as you've gotten the performance that you need. You know, that, it gets troublesome if, if you, you still haven't gotten what you really felt the scene needs, and now we're trying something different. But I think uh, in the right circumstances, it's great to have it in the cutting room. Um, and sometimes they'll come up with something that was like, wow, you know. And oftentimes with actors, um, I'll, I'll just sort of, uh, if I feel like they, they have this, this gift, um, once we get a take I like and I'm printing it and I'm ready to move on, sometimes they'll just say, you know, let's just try one more and go nuts. Let's see what happens. And most actors love that. Some don't, but most do. And, and you get something that could be just amazing. Uh, or not, but it's worth going for, and you have the safety of knowing you have what you, you know, what you need. Um, there's a moment where it gets abusive, in that the actor never wants to move on. Um, I haven't really had that experience. I've seen other directors have it, uh, and it's a little bit of a nightmare where you feel like, okay, 55 takes, and you know, I don't want to direct this in the cutting room. I'm directing it here. So, you know, so um, that's sort of the danger, that I guess. But you know, I love when an actor has a different way of doing things and wants to try something different and feels free enough you know, to do that. I think it's great and should be encouraged. What if a director can tell that something is untruthful or not working with an actor in a scene? How do you approach the actor? It's, it's a tricky and difficult thing, I, I find, anyway. Um, but I think the most important thing to keep in mind is to speak, first of all, privately and quietly with the actor. That's, you know, I've visited people on sets and I, uh, I see these directors over at the, in Video Village at the monitor and uh, cut, cut, cut. No, it's, it, it, you, you're not funny enough. You gotta, it's got to be funny. Make them laugh, you know. And the actors, oh my God, I, I just think that's horrible. You know? So I tend to, after every take, even if I don't have a note, I will go to the actor and just, you know, hey, doing good, this is great, you know. Uh, and I just try to talk about something uh, softly because if you give an actor an adjustment publicly, now uh, everyone's watching and they know now they're being judged. Did they get this note? Did they nail it? Is it still not right? You know, it's, it's a little bit. So I just try to work very privately with the actor and just give them just a gentle thing. And I never um, you know, give them, as I said, like a line reading. Uh, I just try to get them to ask themselves questions about what's, you know, what were you, what are you feeling here, you know? And if I, if I feel something's wrong, it's not working, I'll just, I'll just say to them, so what are you feeling in this, you know, in this scene? And they'll tell me, and sometimes that's like, ah, of course, so that's not at all what we're really doing here. And I'll say to them, well, try this, you know, what if you were feeling this, 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 this? And usually they'll go with that. You know, if and you know, there's always a moment where they nope, 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 I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, then now you're in the bad actor director you know, nightmare, <laughs> which is very hard for the director to win unless you're the big director. Um, 
But uh, I find that most of my relationship with actors has mostly been really healthy and positive and respectful. And, you know, I sort of get um, the courage it takes to do what they do. And I do feel, because as a writer, sometimes you get locked into a certain cadence you hear about the line, the way the line has to be spoken. And, and the actor doesn't see it that way. And they're not saying it that way. And if it's really egregious, I might say to him something or her, something specific as, I'd love to hear that just with the emphasis on that word instead of this word and see how that, you know. And I get a good result sometimes, sometimes I don't. And what I've learned is that you just have to let it go at a certain point if the actor is just not doing it. Even if they're trying hard to do it, if they don't hear it the way you hear it, uh, it's going to be false if they force themselves to do it. So many a time, I just have to walk away thinking, I'm not going to force them. And the reality is, you're the only one in the world who knows that there was a different meaning about that line or a different emphasis on that line. So it's always going to bother me when I hear it, but no one else is ever going to notice it or feel it. And so you have to kind of let go and, and you know, not, not make everything so precious. Uh, because an actor, if you cast the right actor, you want them to bring to the table their interpretation, their quirks, their ideas, and it's going to sometimes bump up against yours. And uh, unless it's something that's really story-altering, you know, I almost always uh, go in favor of what the actor wants to do, uh, unless it's just, you know, crazy. <laughs> but um, I, I trust their instincts, and they know it works for them, and so I'm usually happy to let them do it. By the same token, if an actor ever asks for another take, yeah, absolutely. I, I, and that can get abusive, too. It could be a point where they don't want to move on. They're just going to, you know, let me try one more time. But uh, I, I think you're crazy. Even though you, you might have a take that you think is fantastic. That's a great take. I'm ready to move on. You want to move on. You have to move on. But the actor says, can I just try one more? You got you to do it because there might be something incredible. Even if it isn't, the actor knows that they're heard and that they got their shot and that you're not going to just cut them off. Why do you like twist endings? <laughs> I, uh, I guess I loved them as a kid growing up. I loved trying to uh, you know, see the twist coming, trying to solve it. Um, I, you know, I rarely could as a kid. Uh, and I just love the idea of, uh, of your, your expectations and your experience kind of being turned on its head and with something else all along. Uh, I love that. And I've... Um, on Ghost Whisperer, we started developing this idea of twists with, with you know, every episode, and then twist upon twists and all kinds of things. And so I really got uh, very comfortable with it in that and, and loved it. And now in these short films, um, I'm doing it all the time. I just, uh, you know, almost all of them have had at least one twist. I usually try to get three twists in to really confuse the audience so they don't see it coming. And in a short film, it's particularly difficult because you have so little time to lay the pipe for, for a twist. And so the audience, and you know, if they know there's going to be a twist, they know they're watching this film because it can't possibly just be this. There's got to be something else going on with this character. Um, so you have to, it's a delicate balance of having to try to redirect the audience and sort of have a red herring twist that they think it's going to be, and then the actual twist, which they can never see coming. And every movie I do, it becomes harder and harder to come up with that twist of, you know, well, we never saw that coming. But it's fun. It's a great challenge to do it. 
Why, why would you say it's become harder? Is that because so much has been done? I, so much has been done, and you know, there's a thing of trying to top yourself. Uh, and again, it's the short film sort of format. And, um, uh, and sometimes I work, I just start with the ending, you know, where I'm trying to develop a twist. I start with the ending, and then I go backwards. Um, how, how many convolutions can I take away from this ending that, that makes it a surprise or makes it a twist? Or, yeah, and then by doing it backwards, sometimes I can write a script in a linear way, beginning to end, with one final twist. But then I'll go backwards and think about where else can I put another twist? Where is there, oh look, in scene three, I could plant this seed that no one's gonna really notice, but then it's gonna pay off in this scene. And then when the twist happens, everyone will be an aha moment of, oh, that's why those things were there. Uh, so it's just, it's a, it's a mechanical thing in a way. It's like a craftsman kind of thing to, to do a good twist. And so now I'm just, I kind of love them. And every time I write a short film, I become terrified. I'm not going to be able to find a good twist or enough of them. <laughs> what is a Hollywood ending and what's wrong with a Hollywood ending? I don't know what that means today. You know, I mean, I think at a certain point in film history, it referred to the idea of everyone is happy, everything's tied up in a bow, and, you know, you leave the theater completely satisfied and everything's good. And, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with that, and that's certainly what a lot of people go to the movies for. Uh, they, don't, you know, they don't want to have enough depression and unhappiness in their lives. They don't need to see it on screen. But um, for an artist, it's normally just an unsatisfying way to work. And uh, you know, for most writers and directors and actors, you, um, you, know, you, you just want to do work that reflects life a little more. It doesn't have to be not uplifting. But, uh, you know, realistic. I just want it to be a little more realistic. And I think that the idea of a Hollywood ending, it's not really uh, prevalent that much anymore. I think because of the streaming, the you know, influx of streaming services and digital everything, uh, I think audiences are, are growing more sophisticated and um, are more willing to accept uh, a, um, a convoluted ending or, you know, a more complex ending. And... Uh, I mean, I haven't gotten a note like that in years about, you know, about an ending to make it more palatable or more Hollywood. How do you pull off a twist ending? Well, it's, it's really like a magician's trick. It's about misdirection. It's about telling the audience to look over here when what I'm really doing is over here. And it's really tricky because you know, we were just talking about how sophisticated audiences are today. So, you know, they see it coming right away. So you really got to be careful. And... What I try to do with like a, you know, a, a triple twist kind of a thing is I set something up that the audience right away feels like, oh, that's what the, this is what it's going to be. It's going to be, I know it, I can tell right away. And you, you play that along. And then at the same time, I try to introduce what I would call the red herring twist, which is a little thing that you, you, you weave into a scene that you do it in such a way that the audience is going to notice it and they're going to think that they just caught you. Ah, uh, this is why this guy's there because in the end it's going to be that. And you play that in a few scenes. You, you play those expectations and you try to disguise it. Uh, like, I'm being clever now and I'm going to try to pull this over on you, but you're too smart for me. And in the meantime, there's a third thing that just comes out of the blue that they never saw coming. It's been there the whole time because you can't just do a, these ex machina, you know, just you can't just 
you've got to have it woven in. But it's something that they never really thought about as, as something that's going to pay off. So, you know, this sounds very esoteric. It, it's, you know, it becomes more obvious in the actual execution of it. But that's my, that's the way I do it. You know, and like oftentimes I'll, my first pass on the script, I'll do the obvious choice and then the, the red herring choice. And then I got to really struggle to figure, okay, how is it even different, even another twist on this twist that we plant in the beginning that no one realizes we've been tracking this whole time. So it's, it's fun. It's great fun to pull it off. And it, what's wonderful about it, uh, and I love some of, about my short films, is to sit in an audience, you know, in a theater, uh, at a film festival, and have people react to those twists. It's fantastic. And it's one of the things I love about short films, by the way, um, because my TV work, I, didn't, I was not, wasn't connected to the audience. Um, you know, I'm, everyone's watching on TV in their home, and I don't know. But uh, on the film festival circuit, uh, where I'm a regular with these short films, it's phenomenal. And people seem to love short films. These, these screenings are packed. And uh, we get these big theaters, and it's, it's about as good an experience as you can have making a movie, watching your story unfold, even if it's just 10 minutes, uh, with uh, an audience that, you know, that gets it. Is there a, a director, a writer-director that you remember from the beginning uh, watching movies back in, in Brooklyn that was the master of the twist ending? Well, you know, I mean, I guess Hitchcock, of course, comes to mind, you know, immediately. Um, but uh, I, I, I think I became more enamored as a kid of the twist ending in literature, you know, things that I would read. And, you know, you're so much, uh, you have so much more opportunity to do twists in fiction because the, your readers can't see anything. So you could be describing a character or a location uh, in a way that can disguise the fact that it's really this or this person is really that person, the unreliable narrator. But you don't have that luxury uh, with a movie because they're, gonna, they're seeing everything you're doing. Um, so it, it's you know, that much more challenging. But the answer to the question is, as a kid, I remember um, you know, reading detective fiction and, and that kind of stuff and, and really being drawn in by a good twist that I, I didn't see coming. Should the end of a story always tie back to the beginning? Uh, I don't know if, if it always, you know, like a rule, um, uh, I think it's great if it does. You know, it's, it's a great thing visually to do, and uh, I think it gives the audience more of a feeling that they've been on this complete journey. Um, I, you know, I did, a, not to aggrandize myself, you know, but I, uh, I, I did a movie once about the relationship between Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. And I began the movie in Dean Martin's dressing room on a close-up of a glass of scotch with ice cubes in it. And I held on it for a long time. In the background, you could hear a nightclub. You could hear some you know, muffled comic and people laughing and hooting. And, and then a hand came into the frame and took the drink, and we revealed Dean Martin. And at the end of the movie, when they break up, uh, it also happens in this time in Jerry's dressing room, and they're saying goodbye. They just had their farewell performance at the Copacabana. We've we've gone through like ten years of their lives, and when Dean says goodbye, and they just have this very awkward kind of parting, full of pain. Talk about subtext. You know, they're dying inside each one of them, but neither one can talk about it. They could just do these 
perfunctory. Good show. Yeah, best one. Okay, good. Take care. Yeah. Meantime, it's like, oh, don't leave me. Um, so we did the scene, and then afterwards, I leave with Jerry just looking in the mirror when Dean's walked away, and I pan down, and I, I find a glass of scotch. Just mirror the first shot, you know, totally. And so, I mean, that's just an example, again, not that, like, you know, but I'm such a genius, but those are really great visual ways to tie things in, and I, you know, I had to fight with the network about keeping that. <laughs> you, know, this is, you know, cut on his face, just cut out on his face. No, no, there's a reason. Uh, but any anytime you can tie in the beginning to the end or any other part of the movie, you know, callbacks are always, you know, the 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 joke in in movies, are, you know, you can never pull a gun on screen without having that gun play somehow in the movie. You, you can't show it. You can, and I feel like that's that's true about everything in a movie. You you can't introduce anything in a film that doesn't somehow call back later. And even if it's a character, um, you know, everything in the, in the movie has to be there for a reason. And I think it teaches you a great discipline in writing if you try to apply that everything you write. Okay, I'm going to introduce this prop, this, this person, this, this event, and it can't be just there for the sake of being there. It's got to be there for, to serve the story. And so how do we call it back later on? And callbacks were different than bookending? I suppose so. I mean, I think they can be the same, but they could also be different in that, you know, a callback, uh, you know, just could be just a, even just a fun thing where we we see a, a joke introduced at the beginning of a film, someone always loses their glove, and then, uh, th you know, a third of the way through the film, that, that comes up again, uh, they lose the glove. Um, and again, it's an example of like, never let something go to waste. Don't Don't introduce someone who loses the glove. And then not somehow bring that back later, not pay that off in some way. Uh, so you know, I, I think uh, if if you have to be strict strict about it, you know, bookends obviously being in the end of a film, and callbacks can just happen anywhere in the body of a, of a movie. But also, I don't want to feel like there's rules like that. They really aren't. It's just about what what you feel works for your story. I have a line of dialogue for you. People are always going to want to see movies, Ma, not just on TV or in the theaters. <laughs> <laughs> Which familiar. I love. Um, so that's a line from your movie, White Irish Drinkers, and uh, love the film. The young protagonist, Brian, is his yeah. name? Okay. He's trying to convince his working class mom, Karen Allen, in the film, that entertainment is important. It's true. And you know, it's also a, a poignant callback to the idea that you know, we all know movie theaters are not going to be uh, the only place to see movies, and people are not always going to want to go to movie theaters to see movies, and so it's a more idealized time in the film is set in 1975. Um, uh, and I always find it kind of poignant to see characters' hopes and dreams from the point of view of the future where we know this isn't going to happen. And there's another moment in the film where um, uh, his girlfriend, um, uh, Nora, is talking about her dreams of being a travel agent because she's going to get to travel the world. And she says to Brian, you know, people are always going to want to travel, and they're always going to need a travel agent to do it for them. And of course, we know that's nonsense now. You know, it's like, <laughs> Expedia, hello. And so there's something to me poignant about that, and, and, and you know, with our knowledge, armed with our knowledge now, you know, that, that, uh, what the world is versus what it was. And, and I love, too, that um, he felt like he had to hide his paintings and not that they were of anything bad, or, or that he just wasn't very uh, upfront about them. Right. And well, you know, it's a cultural thing, too. And you know, it comes from the experience I had growing up where wanting to be a filmmaker 
you know, you might as well say, I want to be an astronaut. I mean, it's probably, they probably think it's more realistic for you to be an astronaut than, you know, a filmmaker. Uh, you know, a lot of times there was really no value placed on it. What is that? What do you want? You know, um, it, felt, it was a pipe dream. Yeah, everyone wants to be that. You know, so, you know, I would be embarrassed to admit to people what I wanted to do because I'd be made fun of. And uh, I made films as a kid. I made Super 8 films. I, I enlisted my friends you know, to help me make them. But it was always frustrating because, you know, beyond a certain point, the enthusiasm would wane from my friends because, it's, you know, it's hard work. Even making a little Super 8 movie, it, you know, it, it takes hours. It's hard work. And now, you know, listen, we want to go play ball, man, you know. Uh, and so I never, it was always difficult to find people with my level of passion to, to work as hard as I want to do to make these movies. Um, and so... Uh, you just in the in the neighborhood. Just, it just wasn't something that uh, you know. I remember I had a summer job once at the, in the parks department, and uh, it was a ridiculous job. But, you know, they didn't really need any help there, but they were trying to. It was a program for underprivileged kids to go and work in the summer, and so I worked with these park department guys who were just these, you know, these real these Dems and those kind of guys, you know. And uh, and he said to me, one one of them said, "Okay, what do you do with yourself in your spare time? What do you do?" I said, well, I, I make movies. Oh, movies, what kind of movies? Yeah, can I be in them? Uh, you know. And so that was sort of the level uh, that you were dealing with. So it just became easier to, to be quiet about it and not. And uh, you're much easier for someone like Brian because he doesn't need help. He does, he can just paint by himself. And the idea that he, this is always something that's moved me all the time. Just the idea that that someone suspects they may have a talent for something. They suspect that it could be big and that it, uh, not necessarily big in terms of fame or fortune, but big in terms of it can take me out of the life I'm in and put me in a different life. And I'm always, every time I read a story about somebody who's, you know, who, who came from uh, uh, terrible circumstances and because of their art, you know, got out of it and became a different person, you know. Um, for instance, my father, uh, you know, I love my father very much and my my. Mother and he broke up uh, when I was very young, my brother and I. And uh, I would see him on the weekends, and he was just a, a real original character, tough, tough, you know, iron worker. And uh, it turned out, I found out later, that he had an incredibly high IQ. And when he served in World War II, he took an aptitude test, I suppose, and they gave him uh, an anti-aircraft gunner job, which apparently was that era's version of like a high-tech job because he was so smart and you know, he got out of the army and he went back to work in construction and that's what he did you know and I always would think that I'm just going to be I get lost in these thoughts about like what if there had been a different circumstance for him a different opportunity if he had gone to college if he had read more if I don't know what and not to be elitist about it either because I'm not saying there's anything wrong with his life he loved being an iron worker he was very good at it but um you know, it just always made me think about this whole nurture versus nature issue. And had he been born in different circumstances, would he be a doctor? Would he be a philosopher? Would he be, you know, same guy, but but different. So that's what that kind of thing always moves me, and I think about it all the time. And uh, um, that character was very real for me because that's, you know, he's afraid to leave his neighborhood because it's safe, and he understands it. It's the world he knows and he's comfortable in. And outside the neighborhood is all things that are terrifying to him. And so his friend's going off to college, wants him to come with him because his friend is smart enough to know Brian has talent and he has to get out of his and he has to get away from his father in the movie. 
Um, Brian's af afraid to do it. So can he find the courage to bet on his talent? And and you know, will that work? And and, and so that's really his character's dilemma, and and what he what he has to try to struggle with. And you know, that moment is my favorite in the movie where his mother is angry at him because you know she doesn't know why he's in that basement. What's he doing in that basement? You doing drugs down there? You know, I'm going to kill you if you're doing drugs down there. No, I'm not doing drugs, ma. And you know, the brother gets arrested and. Mother's upset, and she has to go tell Brian, get your father out of the bar and tell him your brother's been arrested. And she calls him, he doesn't answer. Son of a bitch, he's in that basement. And she tears down the stairs, and she comes face to face with these paintings that she's never seen. And it's something about him that she's never known or suspected. And so I, I just get emotionally thinking about it because it was so well performed by the actors. Um, and so those are, are the key moments for me. That's a life-changing moment for her because suddenly she's faced with this absolute evidence that this kid is talented in a way that they can't even fathom. Uh, they, they have no idea what to even do with this. Um, so anyway, uh, um, that's really uh, uh, why I, I felt just so strongly about that character. I think it's a universal thing with that character. You know, everyone, so many people feel uh, that they have to hide their talent or hide who they are um, because it may not be approved of or you know, they may not succeed at it. Uh, and so, you know, I, I always dream of someday of making a, a sequel to that movie and, you know, see where they all ended up. Um, but anyway, that's, that's why Irish drinkers. And what I love, too, is so much of it is, is the fight against staying in the neighborhood and getting the safe job versus I got to get out of here. I can't end up right. like my parents or I can't end up, you know, I, right, I know my right. fate if I stay here. Yes, yes. And there's, there's a fear. You know, some people just naturally feel us. Like Todd, the character Todd, who's going to go to college, he's going to go off to Pennsylvania, and he's not worried about leaving the neighborhood. Or he's, he can't wait for new things. But for a lot of people like Brian, and I have to admit it, it was you know I had to fight it myself. Um, there's a fear about: Am I a fraud? Can I make it outside my comfort zone? Um, and it's really difficult to take that step. As a kid, I could fantasize about being a Hollywood director. And, I'm going to make movies and I'm going to have this life and I'm going to express myself. But then when the reality of that comes, yes, okay, but you can't do that in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. You've got to do that here or here or there. And you have to travel. You have to be there for months to do it. And, uh, you know, in a, in a place that you've never been before. And so for a lot of people, that's great. What's the problem? But for people who have more of a parochial, uh, you know, kind of, you know, existence, you grew up in these small neighborhoods where, you know, people in the neighborhood who barely went to Manhattan. You know, it was like a big drudgery. Oh, shit, I got to go into the city today. You know, and so the fear is becoming like that, you know, for, for, for people like me. And Brian, who ultimately realizes he, he can't stay. He can't protect his mother. He can't stay for that. He's got to go. Right, and uh, it's interesting, too, about the forces that try to hold you back. Right. they don't want to see you leave, maybe they don't want you to go, exactly. or, who, you know, who do you think you are, you know? Right, you're better than me. What are you, better than me? Uh, and because it, it makes them ask questions about themselves that they don't want to you know, think about, never mind, <laughs> never mind answer. Uh, and that is true. There are a lot of, and it's not only generational. It, it's, it's you know, within uh, a group of friends that people might, you know, don't, don't you're a traitor. You're leaving your neighborhood, you're, you know, turn your back. You know, you turn your back on us, your friends. Well, what's the matter? A lot of heavy guilt, uh, and and it's all about 
I don't want to. I don't want to make the same decision. You can't be braver than me.